Uh, my name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here at Potomac Hills. Uh, if you're new, it's great to have you here with us. I'd encourage you to stick around a little bit after the service. Uh, we don't bite. I promise you that. We'd love the chance to get to know you. It's good uh, to be standing in front of you again after uh, a summer on sabbatical. Uh, and I, I think I got back into the swing of preaching at Mojnik, so thank you again for praying for um, my talk at Mojnik. Uh, Mojnik went really well. Uh, it was exhausting, but really well. So thank you for praying for us. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as you do so. A quick recap. Paul is, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. He's writing because he senses that it's about time uh, to pass the torch to Timothy, who is his spiritual son and apprentice. Last week, Dr. Dave had uh, the thorny passage about gender roles in the church. And this week, we have a passage about the qualifications for officers, namely elders and deacons. And a quick plug for um, community groups, because uh, community groups start today and this week. I got to write the community group questions, and I like to put our elders sometimes on the spot. And so one of the questions I think is, if I remember correctly, is how do your elders point you to Jesus, and how do they not? Um, because your officers need feedback on how they're doing, and they want to hear from you about how they're doing as well as they point you to Jesus. And so uh, come venture grievances <laughs> at community group. Uh, there's a reason why we have an elder in every single community group, is so that we can hear from you. Uh, it's one of the primary ways that the elders listen to the congregation, know where the congregation's at. And so if you're not participating, it's hard to hear from you. Um, so I do encourage you to participate in those um, <clears throat> community groups. But now let's turn our attention to God's word. First um, Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well are de as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I may delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, as we come to see what godliness looks like, especially in our officers, Lord, we ask that we would see uh, words not only to uh, officers or potential candidates for officership, but to all of us, that we might see a picture of you in the church working um, to grow the church into your likeness. Lord, be with us now. Show us your son. Help us see your gospel at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, not all Bible verses are created equal. I would wager that many of you have a life verse or a favorite verse that uh, you rehearse in your mind over and over again that you keep coming back to because it just resonates so well with you. And these are often verses that we put uh, in picture frames and hang on our walls or make into big, giant wall decals and stick them onto our walls so that we are constantly reminded of them. And then there are Bible verses that you just don't even remember, right? If you think about uh, most of us couldn't quote a verse out of Leviticus or uh, Zephaniah, you know, most of us... You know, these, those narrative verses that tell of the Israelites going from here to there, those, those names that, we, that hold almost no meaning to us are hard to remember. The landmarkers in Joshua, maybe the census at the beginning of Numbers 1, they're not really quite picture frame material. You don't throw up, you know, there are 100,000 mighty men of warriors and out of, you know, the tribe of you know, Dan or something like that. Don't really throw that up on our walls. And then there are verses that we just file away and pull out whenever we need to reference something as we make decisions or go about the life of the church. And 1 Timothy is often one of those chapters, one of those passages that we just sort of file away. We know what's there, but we don't really reference it a whole lot. We usually only think about this chapter when it's nomination season, which is coming for Potomac Hills in January, so be thinking about uh, who you might want to nominate for elder or deacon. And when it's time to think about which men we are going to ask uh, to, if they feel called to be an elder or deacon, we inevitably dredge up this passage from the file cabinet to see the qualifications for each office. Not surprisingly, I think that this chapter is more than just file cabinet material. It might not be plaster on the walls material, but this chapter, we would be, do, we would be well to, to sort of keep it closer to the forefront of our minds. And why? Why should we care about this passage and instead of just sort of filing it away to pull it out when we need it? And I think it's because this, this chapter, and of course context sort of makes this make us understand this better, because this chapter comes right in the middle of two passages that talk about how the church 
isn't supposed to operate. Last week's chapter was about how the order of God shouldn't be reversed. It was a little thorny for some of us. Next week's chapter begins with people who will end up leaving the church. And so chapter three is really sort of the positive meat in a what-not-to-do sandwich. Chapter three gives us a great positive picture of what Christians are to look like and how the church is supposed to operate. And so if you ever want to know what godliness in the church age looks like, 1 Timothy 3 is where to look. If you're looking at your Bible um, in chapter 3, chances are that the editors of whatever edition you've got have divided this passage into three parts. Verses 1 through 7 about elders, verses 8 to 13 about deacons, and then verses 14 to 16 about godliness. And it's really that last section, the mystery of godliness, as the ESV puts it, that tells us how to understand this passage. Because it's not just a list of qualifications. It's not just a list of traits. It is really a mystery of godliness. So look with me at verses 14 to 16 again. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." And so the purpose of chapter 3, and really chapter 2 as well, is right there in verse 15. That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So chapter 3 isn't just about choosing the right men to lead the church and to serve the church, but rather it's mostly about how the church as a whole ought to be. And notice that this is much more about being godly than it is about managing human resources. The descriptions of good elders and good deacons isn't confined to talking about men. Sure, the administration of the church is entrusted to godly men and men only, but Paul is calling all members of the church to be like these godly men. If we look at these qualifications closely, most of them are not gender-specific. They're simply describing the godliness of these men. Again, I'm not saying that women should be elders or deacons, but just that these lists of qualities can be aspired to by both men and women. And there's nothing inherently male about being faithful to your spouse or inherently male about being sober-minded or being able to manage your household well. And while men are called to lead both in the church and in the family, They couldn't do so without the complementary, critical, and godly contributions of their sisters in Christ and their, their spouses. And so this is much less about men and much more about their godliness. And so Paul is holding up these men because of their godliness, not because of their maleness. And so in essence, he's saying the same thing that he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That instruction there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 goes both to men and to women. 
And so 1 Timothy 3 is really just a call to see a picture of what godliness in the church age looks like to follow the example of godly men and to really see what produces such godliness. The emphasis, again, is on godliness and not the maleness of its officers. And that fits with what Paul is trying to do for Timothy and the Ephesian church that received this letter. They're coming up on a period of transition, and while certainly Paul wants them to have godly leadership moving forward, he cares about the overall character of the church moving forward too. It's not even a sub-point. It is one of the main points. The godliness of the church is of vital importance to Paul. And if we look at the end of verse 15 and into 16, we can see that this blueprint for the church is really about God and the truth. We are God's church, and we are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And what that means is that we are to be holding the truth up like a pillar, holding it up on high, displaying the truth, highlighting it, extolling it, lifting it up and also supporting it with all that we have. And that truth is this. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so the truth that we hold up high and that we support is this. It is truth with a capital T, as in I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because everything about living in the household of God revolves around Jesus. It begins with Jesus, is lived by Jesus, and through Jesus, and for Jesus, and it ends with us finally being like Jesus, sanctified and perfected. Now, those, uh, those of you that are children, that are too, too old for children's church, and uh, sometimes get lost because we talk about big things, I want you to think about this. We have started with Jesus. We are looking at Jesus. And we are going to come back to Jesus full circle. And I want you to be thinking and looking for when we come back to Jesus, listening very carefully for when we come back to Jesus. And you can put, put, up, put up a big sort of circle because we have come full circle back to Jesus. So if you're a child still here and you're older than I see some of you older than uh, old enough to be out of children's church, but sometimes find it hard to follow along. Put up a big O when we come back to Jesus. I'll be looking for it, okay? So it all begins with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This truth, this godliness, all of it is about Jesus. So as we look at this truth then let's look and go back to verses 1 to 13 about the qualifications for elders and deacons to see what this godliness is supposed to look like, what Jesus applied and living in the church is supposed to look like, a concrete example, concrete picture that we can sort of sink our teeth into. I'm really excited for this passage, uh, to see this passage from a different angle, not just sort of a checklist of, qualities because I sometimes get asked, often by children, but sometimes by adults, about what the godly Christian life in the church age looks like. Most of the pictures that we see of Christians in the Bible are during the apostolic age or sort of 
pre-Christ. And so it's sometimes hard to understand what it looks like when you can't just go over to Peter or Paul or John and say, hey, what was Jesus like? What have you, tell me about what you have seen and just be able to get an answer. Now that we don't have the apostles with us, now that we don't have Jesus with us, what does it look like to live when Christ has ascended and is not with us in a tangible way that we can see and point to or even have somebody that has had direct contact with them? What does it look like to live as a Christian in a world that is complex and often hostile and hard to sort of parse out what it means to be godly in the modern world? This picture that we get here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is as good a picture as we're going to get of what it looks like to be godly in the church age. Now that the torch is being passed to Timothy, what does godly look like, godliness look like in the church? Look with me again in ver- at verses 1 to 13. We can take them together both sections for elders and deacons because the word likewise in eight connects the qualifications for elders and deacons. Much of what we see in elders should be seen in deacons as well with regard to their godliness. The only qualification that we see in elders that is not seen in deacons is the ability to teach. That difference can be chalked up to the different purposes for each office, um, with elders charged with the teaching and handling of the word of God and deacons with the works of mercy and service. But anyway, let's look at verses 1 through 13 again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the church, uh, for God's church? He must not be a re- recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. There's a lot of qualifications. I'm trying to go quickly. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there are a lot of descriptors there, a lot of things that we need to keep in mind. And we could get lost in the weeds, as many commentators do. The number of pages on every qualification is quite lengthy. We could get lost in the weeds as we look at them, but I'll just categorize them for you. And they should be up on a slide, maybe, possibly. There they are. Okay. We, we can basically place each qualification into one of five categories with some overlap. For instance, not being quarrelsome is both a relational trait and um, one that speaks to how much a person is about themselves. Quarrelsome people often have the biggest egos 
and care much more about themselves than being right. Likewise, being respectable has both steady and relational aspects to it. Hospitality uh, is actually the Greek word for uh, lover of strangers, literally philo, uh, philo xenos, or philo from Philadelphia, brotherly love, and xenos from like xenophile, you know, stranger, right, alien. And so it would, um, it would fit under relational, um, not about themselves, and also the lover of the lost. So each of these categories is important. So let's look at faithfulness. We ought to be faithful people. We, are made, we have made covenants before the Lord uh, to our spouses and to our churches. In doing so, we have proclaimed who we are in Christ and have pledged to live in a manner that befits a follower of Christ. And our officers should be exemplars in this. They should be great examples of what it means to be faithful. And while none of us are perfect, faithfulness ought to be one of the best descriptors of Christians, sort of the rule rather than the, than the exception, that we are faithful. Well, what about steady? Steadiness is sort of the best I could come up with as a catch-all to describe not being an out-of-control person. Sober-mindedness, self-control, avoiding addictions, especially to alcohol, and temperance all speak to the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life. We are often tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves of our circumstances, and actually most often by our feelings. But Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 15, tells us of the steadiness that comes in Christ. And this doesn't mean that it's not hard. It just means that we have someone to hold on to, to come back to, to continue to touch base with, right? We will have feelings, but we will speak what we know to be true to feelings that will change. So listen to Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried along by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, there's the truth that the church is to be a pillar and buttress of again, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so we are to be steady people, people that come back again and again to Jesus, not because we've got it all together, because we are not to be moved and we are the frozen chosen and we don't, you know, we don't have any feelings. That's not the case. We are to be people that run to Jesus again and again because we cannot handle it. And so steadiness doesn't necessarily mean that we are always right and good and have it together, but that we are steady in our response, that we run to Jesus as a rule. Jesus. Okay. What about relational? As you heard in Ephesians, that we are one body in Christ. There is a relational aspect to the church and to its people and also to its officers, 
there's a unity that we have in the church in Christ. And we and our officers ought to be people that prize unity over quite a lot of things, that we care deeply about connection. And this is really countercultural. Today, right, being right is often used as an excuse to divide communities, to break fellowship, to break connection, to say, I am, I am right, and if you can't deal with that, then I'm not going to be friends with you. We have seen many folks, we've seen churches divided over what people think is right on a secondary issue. There is a time and a place to divide over issues. Often when the gospel is at stake, we have to divide. But most of the time in the life of the church, the gospel is not at stake. And so we need to stay with people and relate to them and connect to them. And while we are certainly about truth, it is a truth that is communicated towards teaching, building up, and connecting rather than correcting and condescension. We often feel really good when we can talk down to people because we're right. And that is not the way that the church ought to be. Because that tears people down. It doesn't build them up. And just because we're right doesn't mean that we can treat our connections however we want. You see, Christians ought to care about connection deeply. That's reflected in our connection to others, our welcoming, uh, as we welcome them into our lives, into our homes, into our spaces. That's the hospitality aspect. That's reflected in our connection to the word of God. That's reflected in our connection to each other, not seeking to win or to argue, but rather to build up. In both the elders and deacons list, managing the household is present. Church is to be a family. We as lay people should care about being connected as a family is. We need to be present in each other's lives. You can't just show up on a Sunday and expect everything to be good. If I only saw you once a week, we wouldn't be that close. I certainly wouldn't know what's going on in your life. I would have a very hard time showing you Jesus, showing you grace and mercy and compassion. Why? Because I simply don't have the opportunity. It is very easy to have it all together, to be very straight-laced and buttoned up, and I've, I'm, I'm, a, I'm good on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. You can, you can pretend for an hour and a half for just about anything. It's hard, when you, it's hard to do that when you're living with each other. We know our families very well, and the church should be that way too. And if you're introverted, don't think that you can get out of this either. Introverts need connection. It's not just for extroverts. What about not about themselves? This is probably the most straightforward one. Christians aren't to be about themselves. That has no place in the church. We are members of one body, and we are called to serve one another. And so we can't be greedy. We can't be egotistical. We can't think of officership as another rung to climb in the social ladder. Pretty straightforward. Don't be about yourself. What about lover of the lost? I, think it, I thought it was really interesting here, that one of the qualifications of church officers is their reputation outside of the church. Why should something out there matter in here? 
Why should, something, why should the, the, the opinions of others outside of the church matter to us here in the church? And I think the reason why caring for the lost and having a good relationship for the, with those outside of the church is vitally important, not only in our leadership, but also in the church as a whole, is because these qualifications point to Jesus. Surprise! That these qualifications are meant to give us a description of what it looks like to be like Jesus. They give us a picture of who Jesus is and his priorities. It's not surprising that we begin with Jesus and we've circled back to him again. Friends, these qualifications describe what it means to be like Jesus, living in a modern world. If Jesus were a member here at Potomac Hills, he would be faithful, he would be steady, he would be relational. He would definitely not be about himself because he went to the cross for us, of course, right? And he would care deeply about those outside of the church. Why? Because he cares deeply about the lost, because every single one of us in this room were lost when he died for us. His eyes wouldn't just be on those here, but also those out there, desiring that many would be brought in. And so as we look at these qualifications, we need to understand that the Christian life is about loving what Jesus loves in the order and priority that he loves them. These traits, these things are the things that the Lord loves and should be priorities in our lives. Jesus cares that we are faithful because he is faithful, faithful to his Father, faithful to his promises to a sinful people, faithful to the word that he came to fulfill. Jesus is steady. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus is our rock, our refuge, our anchor, our strong tower, our fortress. Jesus is relational. He doesn't just stay up there in his righteousness, in his perfection, but rather he comes to meet us right where we are. He gets down in the miry dirt and grime of this world, in the brokenness of this world, and he meets us right where we we are, seeking connection and union with us. He isn't quarrelsome, but rather teaches us about graciousness, humility, kindness, and gentleness. He leads us in truth, not by bashing us over the head with it, saying, how dare you? You know better. What's wrong with you? He doesn't do that. Instead, he comes and he leads us to truth through service and sacrifice and care, bearing with us, pleased to sanctify us on his own time. Friends, as we look at, as we deal with those around us, it's important to remember that sanctification is not instantaneous, that it is a process that we are on a journey and that the Lord is the one who has begun that journey and it is he who will bring it to completion as we learned in Philippians in our series, I think maybe last year. When we talk to unbelievers and they come to faith or they don't come to faith, we need to bear with them understanding where they are because they're not going to be perfect. They're not even going to change very fast. Why? Because you don't change very fast either. And the Lord is pleased to walk with you in your sinfulness and brokenness that is yet to be sort of purged from you. As much as we are dissatisfied with 
our own sinfulness. We are dissatisfied with other sinfulness, but we can also be gracious as the Lord is gracious to us right here, right now. And sure, there are some hard moments, but it is always words spoken in love and with love for us. Jesus is not about himself. He cares nothing about fame and fortune, but rather has laid everything down for us, for our sake. He took on the sin of the world, the judgment that came with it, the alienation that comes with it, with all of that for us. He is truly a suffering servant, and so we too should be suffering servants. And lastly, Jesus loves the lost. He loves you. He loves me. He loves sinners. Not after they've changed their ways. He loves sinners in their sin. Not after they've become easier to love. No, he loves sinners in the midst of this, their sin. And so we should too. So friends, that's what our officers should be like. They should embody and resemble Jesus. They are the ones that we look to as examples of godliness. And we should be like them as they are like Jesus. And we need that picture of Jesus. We need the picture of Jesus that we see in our officers and in each other. Because life is hard, especially right now in the church. It feels like there is a crisis or at least hard providences in so many families here at Potomac Hills. If ever there was a time that we needed a hug, a kind word, or help from Jesus, it would be now. But Jesus is only here through our union with him. He's not physically here, but rather he is pleased to do ministry to us through the work of his Holy Spirit and through those whom he is united to. That's all of us who are believers. We are called to display Jesus to those around us, especially those that are hurting. What a privilege it is to bring Jesus to people who desperately need him in crisis, in hard times, in exhaustion, in frustration, in whatever you name it, we get to bring Jesus and apply and show Jesus to them. What a privilege it is to be his hands and feet that embrace the brokenhearted and to bind up their hearts. This picture of godly elders and deacons is how the church should function by Jesus, for Jesus, to those whom Jesus loves. And so the question that I want to leave with you this morning are these. Do we look like Jesus? Do we come back to 1 Timothy 3 regularly to see a picture of godliness in the church? And do we see Jesus in those around us? seeking to be with him as we fellowship with one another. It comes back to him always. It's always about Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, for us. Let's pray. Father God, we don't often see you in this passage. But Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes that we might see you in this passage, that we might see the picture of godliness that is described here by Paul, that we would see you, 
in these qualities that we ought to aspire to. And Lord, while not all of us are going to be elders or deacons, Lord, would you give us um, extra measures of your spirit that we might become godly like good elders and good deacons? Would you show us yourself as we build each other up in love? And Lord, for our elders and for our deacons, would you give them much grace? Would you continue to sanctify them and uh, ever more conform them to the image of your son, that they might lead well, they might be exemplars of you, that we might see Jesus as we look at our officers. Lord, help them be good role models. Help them display your son well. Lord, be with us now that we might come to know you better, that we might be like you more, that we might embody these qualities that are listed here, that we might proclaim the wonders and the mysteries of your godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.